nice little bit of organization there. All right, sweet. <clears throat> Good morning. My name is my name is Adam Russell. I'm the pastor here at the Vineyard, and there are things on the overheads. <laughs> it's all good, Tasha. No worries. Uh, I'm, I, my name is Adam Russell. I'm pastor here at the Vineyard. Uh, if you're here for the first time, we're really glad to have you around. If you're here for the 1800th time, we're glad you're here as well. Everybody doing all right? Good? Good deal. Good deal. Um, if you want to this morning, open up your Bibles and turn to John chapter 12. We're going gonna, gonna to continue on, a, on something I started last week. I want to share just a few things with you this morning. <clears throat> While you're turning there, uh, I'll tell you that this weekend, uh, part of the band and I, we, we were fortunate to be able to go to Franklin, Tennessee and minister at a worship conference. And um, it was, it's always good to get out and see other people and meet new faces and, you know, do what we do. And I don't know, it was great. I love taking the guys places. Um, it's always funny when, uh, this is my favorite part about traveling, especially when I take the band with me. Um, I love traveling and taking the band with me because it's always great to see uh, people that you've discipled, trained, and raised up and released go out and hit it harder than you've ever hit it. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, I mean, there was a moment yesterday during worship where Hannah was singing something. I don't even know what she was singing, but like heaven opened up. I felt like Jacob's ladder just fell down in the room and there was stuff coming down and people could gone up, you know? And I'm like, yes, that rocks. People come up to us afterwards and they're like, we have never experienced, what was she doing? I'm like, she's just doing what she does, you know? I'm like, that's just really cool. So I, I love going to do that, but it's also really cool to just go and see another part of Jesus' body. Jesus, Jesus has people all over the world, you know? Just like in far corners of the world. Even Franklin, Tennessee, he has people down there. And that was really great. Um, cool. So I want to I revisit here for a little while something I started last week and um, hopefully add a few things to it. Uh, though, I, though it really is not in my heart to add very much. I just want to tack a few things on. Um, so if you're in John chapter 12, uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. But I want to... I just uh, for the people who are new or visiting this morning, I want to recap just a little bit what we talked about last week. Last week we talked out of, out of 1 Corinthians 15. And one of the things that we see in 1 Corinthians 15 is that we're living, even right now, we're living in a brand new season. Uh, we're living in this in-between times. Uh, the, the theologians call it in-between times, okay? We're living in this present age. But the, the present, the, the age of the future is breaking in on this present age. So the future is even now beginning to work its way backward into the moment that we live in. And the reason that the future can break into this present moment is because of the resurrection of Jesus. And one of the things that we see from 1 Corinthians 15 is that the cross is not the center of our, the center of our faith. This cross is not in the center. It's a part of our faith, but it's not in the center. The center of our faith is the resurrection of Jesus. The fact that he got up, it was the dawn of a new day. Winter, in some way, has, has forever and eternally passed, and, and there's an eternal spring, an eternal, an eternal thawing has gripped the earth, and it came because of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection was so powerful that it forever changed the dimensions of what life and death really mean. Okay? So when Jesus rose out of, the, out of the grave 
on that, on, that, on that Sunday morning, when Jesus was resurrected, when life came back into his body, uh, it forever reorganized and reassembled what life and death means. When we talk about life, this is what it means. All life has to do with having a living encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus. You can't have life apart from, from having an encounter with Jesus. It's the only place there's life. And, the, and the, the reason this is such a word for us, especially here in, in the West, especially here in America, uh, even here in Kentucky, is because uh, our, the culture that we live in, the waters that we swim in, has taught us in, in, in overt ways and in ways that are, that are less in our face, ways that are subtle, that the way to get life is to pursue more stuff. Okay? You think you don't have that in your, in your DNA. I'm telling you, you're wrong. It drips off of you. Culture just drips off of you. And one of the things that our culture has taught us is that life comes from the pursuit of more stuff. It comes from, and in in, in that, that can splinter and, and fraction in a million different directions. For some of us, the pursuit of stuff, more stuff has less to do with uh, acquiring more money or, or more things to go in my garage. But for some of us, more stuff is like, you know, I need, I need, I just need I need people to need me, you know. I need a better job. And, it, and it, it's, it fractures and it splinters. And there's this pursuit on the inside of us. But the thing that the resurrection tells us is that the only place that real life comes from is the resurrected Lord Jesus. We can't just have an intellectual understanding. We can't just have uh, the kind of knowledge that comes from, oh, I know where the resurrection is in the Bible. I know that I can turn to Matthew 28. We can't just have the right answers to the test questions. We have to have a living encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus. See, Paul, says, I'm an, Paul said of himself, I'm an apostle. He says, I was abnormally born in 1 Corinthians 15. And the birth that he received was an encounter with Jesus. You guys remember in, in Acts chapter 9, Paul is out to go kill Christians. This is really stunning. In Acts chapter, uh, in Acts chapter uh, um, seven, I believe, they kill Stephen. Y'all remember that? They stone him. Stephen's an anointed guy. They stone him, one of the early church leaders. And at the, the very, first chap, very first verse in Acts chapter 8, it says of Paul that he had, he had gone and investigated the stoning of Stephen, and he had gone to give his approval to it. This is the guy, okay? But then, and one chapter later in Acts chapter 9, Paul is leaving this moment where they've just stoned Stephen. He's just gone to give his approval to it. And on the way, a flash of light knocks him off of his horse. And he hears a voice, and he's utterly blind. And the voice tells him, go into town and hang out. I'm going to send somebody to you. At the same time, that voice, the Lord, speaks to a a disciple named Ananias. Not the guy who cheated the church, but just a guy from Damascus. And Ananias goes over prays for Saul, the scales come off of his eyes, Ananias prophesies to him, heals his body, baptizes him in water, and baptizes him in the Spirit. He was born into the, he was born into the kingdom. He was born into the family. What, what started all of this was an encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus. When that flash of light shows up, this voice speaks to, speaks to Saul and says, Hey, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus' resurrection forever changes the dimension of what life is. Life is an encounter, an actual encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus. And that happens in all kinds of ways, at all kinds of levels. Some of us have seen flashes of light. Some of us have been knocked off of our donkeys. Some of us, it took six or eight months. Some of us, it took three years for our heart to thaw, and there was just this slow and gentle awakening to the fact that there's a God in heaven And I've been avoiding him. 
And one day you were just tired of avoiding him. And you surrendered into his arms. But life only comes from the resurrected Lord Jesus. The other thing that Jesus' resurrection tells us is this. Is that it forever changes death. Death is no longer permanent. One of the things that we see in the ministry of Jesus, and we also see it in the ministry of Paul, is they almost never talk about uh, death in terms of death. They always talk about it in terms of falling asleep. You guys remember when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead? He walks in, everyone's wailing and moaning and going crazy uh, because she really is dead. And they come out to him, and Jesus says, everyone here needs to settle down because she's just asleep. And they all think, you're crazy, Jesus. Now, was Jesus, was Jesus crazy, or was he naive about what was really going on with the little girl? No, he wasn't. It's that, he, it's that, it's that in Jesus is the resurrection. In John, he says, I am the resurrection. His resurrection forever changed life and death, and death particularly, to the extent that it's no longer this permanent end line forever. It's just, it's as temporal as falling asleep. You're out for a little while, you will come back. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, talking about the people who, who encountered Jesus, he says, you know, after Jesus was resurrected, he appeared to the disciples and to the women and to 500 people, and most of those 500 are, are still alive. They haven't fallen, and only a few have fallen asleep. See, Paul isn't being naive. One of the things he's pointing to is the, is the overwhelming reality that we need to get a grip on is that Jesus' resurrection means that death isn't the final authority or the final outcome to anyone's life it's at at worst and i want you to hear this church at worst death is temporal just like your kids when they go to sleep they will get up usually earlier than you especially on saturday mornings so the earth is thawing and that's one of the things that we've been talking about for the last couple weeks is the earth is thawing winter is slowly leaving springtime is arriving I told you this story about, um, about when I was a kid last week, about how I grew up on a strawberry farm. And about this time of year, the strawberries would, be, would become ripe. And I remember going out into the strawberry field, and there's that day when you go out into the strawberry patch, and it's not just green vines, and it's not just chartreuse hard berries. But occasionally, on that one of those days, you go out and you find the first ripe berry. And you snatch it up and you eat it. And there's nothing like it. You can't buy in the store what grows in the field. Take my word for it, okay? It's not even the same product. And you grab that little berry and you eat it. And then you go jumping over the other rows and running up and down the rows looking for other ripe berries and you don't find one. And so there's this moment of disappointment. It's disappointment because you just ate the one ripe berry. But there's also hope because you know that the ripe berry means that other berries will be ripe really shortly. And one of the things we talked about last week is the fact that Jesus is the first ripe berry of spring. What it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What is fallen asleep? Death, right? Jesus is firstborn from the dead, is what it says in another passage in Romans. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the first ripe strawberry on the vine. And we can have hope forever because if there's one ripe strawberry on the vine, the natural, the natural reasoning that follows that is that there will be other ripe strawberries in that field. Now, who are those ripe, who are those ripe berries? Well, that's you and I. And that comes with certain implications. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. The whole field is ripening. 
And because of that, uh, we live in a, in a, in a time um, where we can experience greater joy and hope. See, one of the things the resurrection uh, sows into our hearts is that there's always a reason for hope. It doesn't matter how bad something is, there's always hope that it could change. Like you could be the most, like even this morning, you might be the most drug addicted, oppressed, no control over your life person. And because of the resurrection, that can change. See, there's always, like your family may be splintered in a million pieces. And there may just be like division and strife and anger in every, in every relationship. But the resurrection says there's hope that it could change. That even in the darkest place, something could grow out of it. <clears throat> so we're living, we're living in a season, um, not just this, one of the things I really want us to see, especially in these coming weeks, is that um, even though we're living you know, between the times, and even though life at times is incredibly difficult, this life isn't entirely um, shaped by our pain and our trauma. It can be, but it's not supposed to be. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we can even now begin to have uh, an experience of joy and hope right beside the pain, disappointment, and discouragement. See, our life doesn't have to be shaped and formed by pain and our, and our uh, shortcomings and our addictions only. It can, be, it can be formed by the joy and the hope of the new life that's breaking in from the future even now. But I want to talk about how, how we ripen this morning a little bit, if that's okay with you. Look at uh, John chapter 12. I want to read just a few verses, uh, 23 through about 25, just a couple verses. <clears throat> Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, and because he's raised Lazarus from the dead, his two sisters give him a party, and at the party, a really sinful woman named Mary brings in $40,000 worth of perfume, and she pours it all over Jesus. She literally, in one more moment, poured forty grand on the Lord. A couple of the disciples get really aggravated. Say, man, we could have used this money for the poor. The only reason they really said that is because they're the ones that kept the money, Judas. And he was just upset that forty grand just went out the door. So this is sort of the context. Jesus has been anointed, but he's been anointed for his burial. And then right after that is the triumphal entry. It's the it's Jesus riding in on a donkey, and it's this prophetic moment, and the whole town gathers around him, and they begin to sing Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. And then Jesus, he, um, he turns to uh, some people who are gathered around him, this is what he says. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We'll stop right there. <clears throat> Whole city has been stirred, and then Jesus turns to him and he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And you can underline that word glorified. It's a pretty good word, right? It's like a good church word. It's like a $5 church word. It's one of those words we don't ever use anywhere but church. <clears throat> like your lost friends have no idea what glorified means. You probably shouldn't even talk to them about glorified. 
speaking French to people who don't speak French. But it's a good word, right? Like, you read it and you, you become encouraged. Like, if you were standing with Jesus and the crowd had just shouted, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and everyone's taking off their robes and they're putting palms down in front of you and it's this giant worship service. And, and we're talking like an impromptu one. It was, it was this spontaneous move of the Spirit around Jesus. And then Jesus begins his little speech with, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be, to be glorified. If you were standing there, you would, you'd be encouraged, right? Glorified is like a good word, right? It's like the weight of God's goodness and favor is about to be revealed. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? Like everything that's been hidden, I'm, I'm going to tear it right open. And I'm going to show you guys the stuff that you've never seen. I'm going to show you the, the brilliance and the beauty of God's favor. That's what he's saying. It's time, right? If you were standing there, you'd be encouraged. I, I would anyway. And then Jesus, then he, in typical Jesus fashion, he baits the hook and then he sets it. And he says, I'll tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground, now, like, glorify, kernels of wheat, what are, what are you talking about, Jesus? I thought you were talking about you being glorified. I thought you were talking about this worship train that was happening. And now you're talking about kernels of wheat falling into the ground. And then it gets worse. He says, unless it falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. Why is Jesus talking about things dying? This is sounding less encouraging, right? It starts encouraging, then it gets less encouraging. And he says, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Okay, that that sounds encouraging. 25, the man who loves his life will lose it. That doesn't sound encouraging. While the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I I can't tell if that's encouraging or not. What's the point? Well, well, the point here is this. Jesus is the first ripe berry of spring, but Jesus is also the model for everything in life. He's the master of life because he has completely defeated death. All right? Jesus is the master of life. We, we can only receive life from having interaction with him. And the reason he's master of life is because he has utterly and completely defeated death. As John Martin McMillan says, the man Jesus Christ has laid death in his grave. Jesus, help me write something like that one day. You hear me, Jesus? Um, but the reason he's the master of life is because he, is, he has completely overcome death. And because of that, Jesus is the, is the source of where we go to get life. He's the source where we go to get life. And he's also the model for how to live life. So if you want to live life like Jesus, if you want to see your life ripen, if you want to see fruitfulness, the thing you have to do is you have to go to Jesus... You have to receive from him. And one of the things that he will eventually lead you into is the kind of life that he lives. So you can't get life living any other way than Jesus' style. See, one of the things that has to happen in the church is there has to be this dramatic shift in our thinking of Jesus is just the guy who saves us from sin. No, Jesus is not just the guy who saves us from sin. That's about one half of 1% of what Jesus does. I know that's shocking. You know, the entire church mostly only knows God as merciful Savior, and that's only maybe 1% of who He is. This is something that, that rocked me a few days ago. It has very little to do with this, but it's kind of cool. Uh, the, be- the beginning chapters of Genesis paints a picture of God the Creator speaking the world and the universe into being. And not only that, but the be- opening chapters of Genesis reveal that God is a Creator and that He likes to make things. And that when he makes things, the first two chapters of Genesis, I don't know if you've ever read, this, read it this way or not, it's a poem. So God is like this poet creator. Like, what's the first picture we have of God? 
poet, beatnik creator. That's part of who he is. There's, there's a hippie strain in God. He wrote a book, and this is like this, this is the book. He's like, this is, I'm going to write the first couple chapters, and it's going to be a poem. I'm going to tell you how I made the world. Yet most of us are only familiar with loving Savior. No, am I beating up loving Savior? Heck no, are you kidding me? That's just ridiculous. I need merciful Savior. I'm, like, I'm counting my life on merciful Savior. But what I'm saying is there's more to him than just merciful Savior. Jesus isn't just the doorway into life. He's the model for how to live all of life. Like every day, like Jesus knows more about running a construction company than a guy who's run a construction company for 45 years. Why? Because Jesus is the model and the master of life. Jesus knows more about teaching school than all the school teachers in here combined. And we got a lot. Jesus knows more about being a, a stay-at-home mom than any stay-at-home mom who's ever lived. He's the model. He's the master of life. He, he knows how to live. And so we need a pattern pattern our lives after him so he says you know hey i tell you what it's time for me to get glorified but i'm going to tell you about getting glorified he says if you're going to get glorified colonel wheat has to fall into the ground and die and every time i read that i'm like man what's death got to do with it all of a sudden i heard tina turner that was insane. <laughs> Who else heard Tina? Just, I, I just heard Tina. She's here. So we might be asking, man, we got to call Tina, like, somehow. We might be asking, like, well, what's, what's death got to do with life? Well, the truth of the matter, according to Jesus, death has everything to do with life. Everything. See, there is no resurrection if there wasn't a cross and a tomb. Jesus is highlighting... He's highlighting what kind of, what kind of life produces a harvest. And one of the things he's saying is, is that the offered up, covered up, hidden life produces a harvest. We'll unpack this a little bit. First, I want to tell you another story. Like, when I was growing up, um, my dad is a crazy gardener. Some of you guys know that. Like, he feeds about 10 families in here every summer. Just because he likes to go out and put this big garden in. And when I was a kid, the garden was a little bit bigger. Um, and every spring, we're out there and we're, we're planting the corn. We had the little push thing and we plant the corn and we plant the beans. And I was the guy who, he would, he would dig the trench and then I would go and put the potatoes in and make sure the eyes were pointed in the right direction. And he'd tell me, you know, no, put your heel on the potato and step on it. Yeah. And because of that, I still love gardens. I still love it. Uh, we have three little gardens. I, I have more manageable gardens that I still don't manage well. Uh, Justin built these gardens, these raised beds for me. They're four feet wide by like 15 feet long. I have three of them. And we, you know, put in some tomatoes. And the herbs do better because they're just weeds, you know. Like if, if, you, don't, if you can't handle a garden, just plant some herbs. You just, 
they'll, they'll do whatever. You know, you, you throw basil out there, you will have basil. If you never water it, you will have basil, you know. And, um, but I still love gardens. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons I love gardens is I, I love this thought that I'm going to plant something and something small is going to become something big and it's going to provide not just for me, but like my family and my neighbors. I, I think that's part of the charm of a garden, isn't it? I, I think it is for me anyway. We like this idea that, you know, I drop one little seed in and then in a few days it emerges and then in a few weeks it's like hanging with tomatoes. I, I love that. I love that idea. One of the things about planting a garden, one of the things I've learned is, is that uh, everybody plants the kind of garden that they'd like to harvest, right? We always plant tomatoes in our garden because Heather and I in particular we love tomatoes like i like to make like i like to take tomatoes and chop them up with some oil some salt some pepper and some and some balsamic vinegar and just like eat it like crazy you know i can go i could pretty much just eat that for days so you plant what you want to harvest right everyone does i think that's part of the charm of the the garden too like i don't like cantaloupes the rest of the family does so i don't plant cantaloupes like if they want if they i think cantaloupes are gross i think they smell like vomit when they're ripe You've never thought of that. You go, you go get one and you think about it. It'll hit you hard. You'll never eat another cantaloupe. So if they want cantaloupes, they have to go plant it. I'm not doing it. But I do plant tomatoes and I plant cucumbers and we'll plant some basil. And just from a few like little things, like Heather will go out in the garden in the middle of summer and she'll grab some tomatoes and some basil and, and some garlic and... And the next thing you know, we have like some amazing like Italian, what is that, you, that little Italian sauce? It's incredible. It'll change your life. You know, I love that moment, you know, and it starts in the spring, you put it in. Yeah, but we all, we all plant what we want to harvest. <clears throat> we all plant what we want to harvest. I want to shift gears here for a little bit. But Jesus is saying, what I want you to do is I want you to plant your life. If you want to see, if you want to see my resurrection power work, you've got to plant your life. You've got to, you've got to, sow, you've got to sow seed, not just like metaphorical seed, you, not, just, not just a few dollars in an offering plate occasionally, but the thing I'm looking for is, is I'm looking for people who will plant their life. I'm looking for people who, who will plant their life and, and put it underneath the ground, just like, just, com- just completely get covered up. I'm looking for people who would die. That's what the Lord is saying. And, and here's what I want to I talk about just for a little bit. I want to talk about about four or five things that have to do with planting our life. Um, any of you guys, when you were going to plant a garden, do you ever go like to the seed store and buy the seed packets, you know? You go and there's all those seed packets. I, isn't that the coolest thing when you go to the seed store? And there are kinds of cucumbers that I've never seen in my entire life on those packets. Like, I've seen cucumbers on the packets that, you know, they're not like the little, they're like this and they curl up on the end. What are those? I, yeah. Here's what I want to tell you about the seed, the seed store. Uh, the seed store is cool, but all the seed store is is just a whole bunch of potential in little bitty packets, right? If, if, we just, if we just leave the seed at the seed store, even if it's really good seed, 
nothing will happen. We have, to, we have to get it out of the seed store. And we have to bring it home. We have to till the soil. We have to amend the soil. We have to get everything ready. And at some point, at some point, the seed has to hit the ground, right? Uh, when I was growing up, I worked at a landscape company, and so a lot of times we would like reseed lawns and stuff and plant. I mean, I, I, from the time I was 14 to the time I was 24, I was just dirty, like planting stuff. And, um, and, and a lot of times what we would do is uh, one of my main jobs for a few years was to reseed people's lawns. And, and people would generally call us after they had tried it three or four times and failed, right? Some of you have done this. Some of you have gone out and you, you've had like, you know, bare spots in your yard and you just, you go out and you take your little hand thing and, and you sow the seed and it falls on top of the ground and you water it and in two weeks, three weeks, it's still just a muddy hole, right? Can I tell you why it's a muddy hole? Because there wasn't sufficient soil contact. Seeds have to come into contact with the ground. And that's one of the things that Rob always said, ah, oh, we've got to have soil contact. We've got to have soil contact. So we would go out there when we were planting seed and we would... We, would, we had a seed drill, and it would drill the seed, not, not lay it on top of the ground. It would put it underneath the ground. Seeds have to touch, have to touch the dirt. They've got to get in the moisture. They've got to get covered up. What does that mean for us? Well, here's what it means for us. It means that when we begin to, to live life like Jesus, if we're going to take him seriously and plant our life, if we're going to give our life up, if we're going to embrace his kind of walk, that we have to plant our life into other people. See, biblically speaking, the earth always speaks of mankind. See, Adam, that was, the, that was the name of the first man. His name is also my name. Praise him. See, Adam's name, Adam's name means dirt man. That's what Adam's name means. And when Jesus says, unless a, a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, one of the things he's saying is, is, if you want to live my kind of life, then you have to plant your life like a seed and I want you to plant it in the ground. I want you to plant it in humanity. See, one of the things that happens in the church is once we've experienced some of Jesus' rejuvenation, a lot of times we want to back up from the world because it's contaminated, right? Jesus says, no, I don't want you to back up from the world. I want you to go into the world. I don't want you to just go toward the world. I don't want you to get next to the world. I want you to go into the world, into the ground, into the darkness. We could put it that way if you wanted to. So the earth speaks of humanity. Jesus is saying, I want you to plant your life into people. And how many of you know that if you plant your life into other people, it'll kill you? Shank. I don't even know what that means. It's just bad. But here's what I do know, because I've hung out with some of you. When you begin to give your life to other people, it will kill you. It will kill your own life. This is the kind of life that Jesus is saying. I want you to plant your life in humanity. I want you to, I want to, I want you to sow your whole life into other people. Uh, he wants to take all of, our, all of our potential. That's what a seed is. Seed speaks of potential. He wants to take all of our potential and he wants to place it right in the middle of people's stuff. Jesus wants to take all of our potential and he wants to plant it in a dark place. You know, some of us live lives of retreat. Man, that's, that's not where it's at. If you want to see, like, if you want to see a, a real springtime blossom, if you want to see the resurrection of power of Jesus at work, you have to take your life and you have to plant it in a dark place. <clears throat> and by the way, darkness is everywhere. 
See, some of us think that darkness is, like, it's like over in Africa somewhere, and it's in the jungle. See, darkness is not just in the jungles of Africa. Like, darkness is in your neighborhood. Heck, darkness is in your family. Darkness is, it's in your own heart. Who are we kidding, right? It's in mine. Darkness is everywhere. Um, you know, some of, us, some of us in here, the Lord's saying, hey, you know what, I want to I take you and I want to sow you into another country. But sometimes what the Lord is saying is, what I would really like to do with you right now is I'd like to plant you in your neighborhood. And when you get planted in, in people's lives, it gets real dirty. And that's part of the image that Jesus is painting here. Unless a seed falls into the ground and dies. When you, when you plant your life into, uh, into another person's life, it gets real dirty. Um, even this weekend, I, I spent some time with a friend, uh, a friend who really loves Jesus, and we had about a two-hour and 20-minute dinner together, and we just wept together because not everything had worked out. You know? He was weeping. By the time it was over, I was weeping because not everything had worked out, you know? Yeah, that's one of the things Jesus wants. Is he, he, he wants us to be the kind of people who will, who will plant our life into, into another person. And Sometimes it's as small as taking somebody out to dinner and spending a few bucks on them and just letting them weep right at the table. They just, they just need to. And you know what? That gets on you and it affects you. You know, we all want to live in like this glory cloud of victory. And you know, sometimes what the Lord is saying is, I would like you just to go with somebody who's weeping. Mourn with those who mourn. Yeah, when you, when, you get, when you plant your life, when you give it up to other people, it, it, it sometimes gets dirty. And, um, I know I've spent some time with, uh, with some drug addicts, and, and it's just incredibly difficult, you know? Like, if you ever want to be a freedom fighter for a drug addict, and, and the Lord's calling a lot of us in the room to be freedom fighters for drug addicts, I just want you to know it will kill you because they will complicate your life to no end. You're like, dude, I'm going to my kid's birthday party. Yeah, but I'm needing right now. You know? I was supposed to go out with my wife. But I need right now. So you get to decide, okay, I give up, I die. You can get your dirt on me. The other thing about sowing our our lives into the ground is, is when we sow our lives into the ground, we get covered up. And when we get covered up, we get hidden. And we all hate getting hidden. Right? This is part of what it means to to give up my life for someone. It's what it means to die. It means, means, God, you can have my life. You can sow it as a seed. You can plant me anywhere you want. And God will always take you up on that offer. It's one of the things he's always looking to do. He's looking to plant people. And when he plants you into 
into some darkness, when he plants you into some people, when he plants you into a mission that comes into contact with actual human beings, one of the byproducts of that is we will, for a season, become hidden. He will hide us. We will get covered up. No one will know what we're doing. In fact, it will look, it will look, oftentimes it will look like to yourself and to everyone around you, it will look as though nothing is happening. And we really hate it when we're hidden and nothing is happening. We really hate that. It's awful. Totally stinks. Because why? Because we want the glory, right? We want, it. We want the glory cloud and we want everybody to know we're great and we want everyone, we want the vindication of God's power on our life to be seen everywhere. And there's almost always a season before that happens, the season where God covers us up. If there's going to be any, if there's going to be any, any, any revealing, there's going to be a season where God covers you up and, and no one sees hardly anything and it feels like nothing is happening and it's one of the most frustrating seasons. And here's why it's frustrating. It's frustrating because we're hidden and we're getting no accolades. No one knows uh, what we have in our heart and uh, it's completely dark around us and sometimes rather uncomfortable and people's dirt is getting on my clean life and that's really frustrating And the thing that makes it really frustrating is that we're a seed, and because we're a seed, we have all this potential, and we feel on the inside the power and the call of God on our life, and it completely doesn't match up with anything we're walking in in the moment. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, ah, I feel all this in my heart, you know? I've I've had ten prophetic words about being a freedom fighter for people who have been sexually abused and now I've got all these people who are sexually abused around me and their stuff is getting on me but nothing's happening. Where's the prophetic word? Well, it's just covered up. He's just just covering you up. He's wanting to see. Are you going to grow or are you going to die? What's up? And it gets dark and it gets heavy and schnikes, right? Schnikes. God bless Chris Farley. You realize we wouldn't even have the word schnikes if it wasn't for Tommy Boy. Holy schnikes. <clears throat> yeah, this is the part, this is that part in, in the season of God where, where, we feel sta- where we feel things way more powerfully than we're able to articulate it. Like we feel it, it's, it's real on the inside. It's like a, it's a seed. It's got every, you know, an acorn has everything genetically it needs to become an oak tree. It is not an oak tree. And the only way that acorn becomes an oak tree is for it to go under the ground, hidden where nobody sees it. Oh man, that just kills our North American, Western mindset of what greatness is. But the Bible's full of this stuff. Joseph got put in prison. Joseph got put in prison and Jesus got put in a tomb. Not fun. But it's one of the things that the Lord wants to lead every single person in here through. See, a lot of times we think of life in terms of this long, sequential, linear moment. One of the things that would be really helpful for us is to take on more of an ancient Celtic mindset and see life more in circles. Life isn't necessarily just this one, one long linear moment. It's this re, there's these repeating cycles and repeating patterns. And one of the things the Lord wants to do is he wants us to lead us into the, into the circle of his son, which is give up your life, lay down, it, lay down your life, let it die, let it go into the ground, 
Become the kind of person who affects other people. Become the kind of person who takes all your potential to spend it on someone else. Let their dirt get on you, and I will resurrect you in power. Let me hide you for a while. Yeah, Joseph got put in prison. Jesus got put in a tomb. Here's the good news, though. The really good news is, because of Jesus' resurrection, we can, go any, we can go into any tomb knowing that, uh, in the power of the Spirit, that it's being transformed not just into a tomb, but it's becoming a womb, and something will come out. See, Jesus takes every tomb, and he makes them a womb. He wants to birth something there. Here's another thing about letting the Lord plant us into the soil. Um, there's, all kinds of, there's all kinds of seeds in the world. If there's a plant, it has some sort of a seed. Um, if there's a plant in the world, there's some kind of a, a seed associated with it. But w- here's one of the things about all the plants that we've ever seen. Uh, good plants, plants that produce um, uh, stuff that we can receive and, and enjoy. Plants that produce... Harvest, strawberries, yeah, that's my favorite, come on. At the same time, there's even weeds reproduce seeds, right? But here's the thing that they all have in common. All plants grow in the same soil, right? All plants grow in the same soil. And so what Jesus wants to do is he wants to, he wants, he wants to plant us in the same soil that all of these weeds grow in, and he would like to see a, a radically different crop come out. The reason that a radically different crop can come out of the same soil isn't because, uh, isn't because of what the soil intrinsically uh, adds or takes away. It's because that the seed is incredibly different. See, when we begin to put our trust in Jesus, it puts imperishable seed on the inside. And what that means is that we can, we have the potential to, to encounter any kind of soil and see a crop that is radically different than the weeds that are presently growing in there come out. All the seeds get the same water. All the seeds get the same rain. All the, same, all the seeds have the same rocks around them. Rocks speak of difficulty. All the, spe- all the, seeds, um, all the seeds have the same um, potential for growth and the potential for withering. Uh, but the, the main difference is, uh, what is the nature of that seed? Here's the deal. When, when, we've put, when we begin to put our trust into Jesus, imperishable seed, eternity comes into our life. Not only that, but this is where it's really cool. All seed sowing in our life is exponential. This is what Jesus says. If a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it will only remain a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So to the extent that we are able to embrace, to the extent that we're, enabled, we're able to embrace death, to the extent that we're able to give up all of our potential for those around us, for the extent that we're able to, to take on people's dirt, and, and, and messes and, and sow our potential into their life to the extent that we're able to do that we'll produce a harvest and it will be radically greater than who we are in the moment all, all seed sowing is, is exponential in nature um, 
did a little research this week. Uh, when you drop a, a kernel of wheat into the ground, that would be one, right? But the average wheat stalk, the head, the average wheat stalk head has 50 kernels on it. So from one seed can come 50. We don't grow a lot of wheat around here. We mostly grow corn, right? So when you drop one kernel of corn into the ground, it has soil contact and water, that corn will produce a stalk, and on that stalk there will be two ears of corn, right? The average year of corn has 800 kernels on it. So from one seed comes 1,600 seeds. See, the life processes of God are all exponential. And one of the things that he wants to do is he wants to, he wants to shape the course of, 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 this, of the season that we live in by, by seeing his own people that he's put imperishable seed in the inside. He wants to plant us. When we, when we really yield to his planting process, the good news is there will be, the bad news is there will be some difficulty, and it isn't his fault. It's just that the world that we live in. You know, you don't have to go with, out with a martyr syndrome and try to find the hardest, most horrible thing to do. The trouble will come and find you. That's just the bottom line. But the good news is, to the extent that we're able to yield to his planting process, to the extent that we're able to, to allow um, others to affect our life, to the extent that we're uh, able to give ourselves to helping affect other people, at, at a certain point... We're no longer just one seed, but we, we have the potential to become, you know, hundredfold. That's what I'm shooting for. You'll know you've been gripped with the life of God when you're able to die and reproduce yourself and other people. Kingdom of heaven is always about reproducing ourselves in other people. Always, always, always. Jesus calls it disciple making. But that only comes by being the kind of person who's yielded and allows, and, and allows him to plant, plant us, plant all of our ambitions. I want to speak to one more thing and then we'll be, we'll be finished. Um, back to that thing we were talking about a few minutes ago when when I was talking about, you know, we all plant the kind of harvest that we'd like to see. You know, when it comes to gardens, we all plant the kind of harvest that we'd like to see. Uh, and Jesus says, hey, if you want to have life, if you want to keep your life, if you want to begin, and by the way, this passage is about eternal life, not just in the future, but it's about right now. I hope you see that. You see that? The man who loves his life will lose it, but the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Where does eternal life start? It starts the moment that you begin to do what Jesus says here. So eternal life isn't some other thing. You don't have to die to experience eternal life. Eternal life is right here. It is right now. Jesus almost never talks about eternal life in some otherworldly, other place sense. He's always talking about right here, right now. This concept that we have to have eternal life, in order for us to have eternal life, we have to like die, get planted in the ground, and leave the planet. That is not what he's talking about. He's saying, I would like for you to give up your life right now and the moment that you do that, eternity begins to rule and reign. The future begins to pour into the present. <clears throat> but we all, plant, we all plant the kind of garden that we'd like to, to harvest. We all plant the seeds that we'd like to, to see harvest. And, and one of the things that we, we need to get a grip of here is that uh, when it comes to giving up our life, when it comes to, uh, when it comes to losing our life so that we can keep it, uh, one of the things it doesn't necessarily mean is that we need to take on a martyr syndrome 
and go find the hardest, most difficult, oppressive thing that we can possibly think of and then do that because we, we sometimes think that the only way that God is pleased with us is if we're just totally suffering, right? Yeah. I mean, here's the deal. A lot of people have become pastors and missionaries because they were living with a martyr syndrome of thinking, what's the hardest, most difficult, worst thing I could possibly do? The thing I would surely hate the most and go and do that, right? Because that's what it means to give up my life. No, that's not what it means to give up your life. What it means to give up your life is to, is to yield to the Father and allow Him to plant you into people. That's what it means to yield to your life. It means, what it means to yield your life is it means it, to take all your ambition and all your potential and say, for everything that I'd really like to run and go do, I am going to lay it down and I'm going to build my life into someone else. And I promise you that process will kill you. You don't have to ask Him to kill you. It will kill you. So I want to talk about one other thing here. So, so how do we know how to lay our life down? Where do, we, where do we know to even begin? Well, one of the ways, one of the places that we begin is with desire. And this runs counter to, to a lot of what we, what we know about laying, uh, laying down our life and giving up our life in Jesus is desire. Does, how many of you all know that desire is a powerful thing? This is, this is what the psalm says. I believe it's Psalm 37, 4. The Lord brought this to my mind this morning. I think this is Psalm 37, 4. It says what? Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart, right? Is that right? It's a powerful word. It's a powerful scripture. And here's the reason it's so powerful. Because when we're able to find our delight in the Lord, the ability to delight in the Lord is purification for my desires. Do you see that? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That, that give you the desires of your heart, it works in two dimensions. Number one, the first dimension is when I delight myself in the Lord, it purifies my desires, so my desires become brand new kinds of desires. Like, like I can begin to trust my desires because I've, because I've already begun to do the primary thing of finding all my joy, all my hope in the Lord. It's desire purification. Not only that, but once the desire is in the heart, when you find your delight in the Lord, that's the kind of thing that God can say, amen to, let's have it, let's do it. All right? Desire is a powerful thing. And so the first process in laying down our life isn't just running off with a martyr syndrome, finding the hardest, most difficult thing that we could possibly hate the most and going there. The first step in laying down your life is beginning to find delight in the Lord. So we don't go searching for death first. The first thing we do is we have an encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus and we receive life from Him. And when we receive life from Him, we're able to reflect delight. Delight is such a big, powerful thing. In Genesis chapter 1, verse uh, 26, 27, and 28, God says this. He says, let's make man and, uh, man and woman in our image. And so, he, and so he created them in his image. And in verse 28, this is what it says. The Lord said to, to, uh, to uh, Adam and Eve, he said, the scripture says, he blessed them. And then he says, be fruitful and multiply. Rule the earth and subdue it. And this is a crazy word. How many of you realize that everybody who's in the seat this morning is here because Adam and Eve were incredibly successful at being fruitful and multiplying? How many of you realize that God never told Adam and Eve how to be fruitful and multiply? He gives them a command. He says, be fruitful and multiply. How did they do it? There was no diagrams there were no awkward conversations. There wasn't a sex ed class. How did they do it? By desire. Right? 
So there's something naturally implanted, and it's implanted by God. Every person in this room has desire that's planted by God. When we're able to find our delight in Him, the, de- the ability to delight in them begins to purify those desires. It highlights those ones that are especially from God. And once that begins to happen, God says, just go do it. Just run in that direction. Give your, li- give your life to those desires. Give your life to, to planting those desires under the ground. Give your life to being with people. Give your life to humanity. Give your life to serving people out of that desire. See, here's the thing. Every single person in this room has a desire to bless other people. Can I tell you that? A lot of us are deceived and we live most of our lives in deception and that kind of deception is uh, living life just to please me. But here's one of the things I've found in every person I've ever met, even some really bad people, I have met... I have never met a person who didn't want to bless other people and, and be a blessing. It came from God. So what is, what's God's word to us this morning? Number one, God's word is, delight in me and let those desires bubble out. And for goodness sakes, let's take some courage and begin to move with some boldness in the direction of our desires. And not so that we could be, become more famous, more rich, and uh, bigger, better known people, but so we could have influence and so that we could go into the ground and see what comes out of that ground be a fruitful harvest for the Lord. Amen? Amen. All right, I think I've said enough. If you're on the ministry team this morning, why don't you come up? Come on over here. Balance out my OCD. Thank you. Whoever wants to go first. Everyone say hi to the ministry team. I think it's on, Alan. Is it green? Golden. All right. 